You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is the Classic Auto Mall Podcast. Broadcast from the studios inside the Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania. Yes, the Classic Auto Mall is a real mall. Just one hour west of Philadelphia at Pennsylvania Turnpike Exit 298. Featuring nearly 1,000 classic, vintage, and barn-fied vehicles for sale under one climate-controlled roof. Now, here's your host, Classic Auto Mall President and the man with all the toys, Stuart Howden. Hi there, ho there, it's J.R. Russ, producer of the Classic Auto Mall podcast. Our thanks to the Pat Travers Band for giving us our theme song and associated music. And with Stuart away, I think we'll play best ofs from past shows that you may not have heard. And in our first segment, we've got a man that, even if you're not a big fan of racing, you probably know the name. He's currently listed as a consultant for Hendrick Companies. He's a former auto racing crew chief for Bill Davis Racing and Hendrick Motorsports. He owns his own team. Here's a clue. Everingham Motorsports from 2001 to 2010. And he's been an analyst for ESPN's NASCAR coverage. And he's best known as a three-time Winston Cup Series champion with driver Jeff Gordon. And in 1999, he won the Winston Cup Illustrated Person of the Year and was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in the class of 2018. Here's the president of the Classic Auto Mall and host of the Classic Auto Mall podcast, Stuart Howden from 2022 with a very special guest our new friend uh calling us probably from somewhere in north carolina ray everham how are you sir i'm doing great yeah we're actually in mooresville north carolina that's uh, where our big iron garage is up here i love that part of the world man that's a beautiful part of the world with the lakes and uh, all that going on and uh, that's a place that would be a good place to retire someday, except every time I look for a place to retire, it seems like the price of real estate doubles every time I look at it. So, yeah, well, yeah. you know, re- retirement is, uh, you know, I think re- retirement is uh, a, a dream that we all keep tracing because chasing because it just guys like you and I, we just don't retire. We just, you know, I always tell everybody, retirement just means more want to do's, less have to do's. That's exactly right. Well, my partner just turned uh, 84 years old. So, I mean, he's still rocking and he's still doing business every day. And I love it. It's a real inspiration. The downside to your partner being 84 is if you decide one day you want to retire, he'll say, well, hey, you can't retire. You're only X and I'm 84. (laughs) Hey, trust me. I'm still good friends with Mr. Penske and he's 85 running. He'll outrun me every day of the week. He is amazing. And I mean, sharp as a tack and just uh, fun to talk to and a real gracious person. You know, he uh, absolutely it's really amazing that Pinsky and, you know, he's from this part of the world, from Reading, uh, just north of us. And I found out in my research of you that you're a Jersey boy. I am. I was uh, I lived in New Jersey most of my life. Um, I'm here in North Carolina almost uh, almost as long as I was in New Jersey. But uh, I lived in a town called Hazlitt uh, near the Bay Shore. Yeah, and then raced, grew up racing at Wall Stadium uh, in Belmar, New Jersey. I, it it is so amazing that the car culture in Jersey and Pennsylvania is something that a lot of people don't truly understand. It's amazing how many car events and places and drag strips and and all the stuff that's here. It's it's just right here, and people don't realize that. They could think of Southern California. I got to argue that this might be as much of car culture as anywhere. Well, the guys at Southern California, they've always been a little bit ahead with some of the 
you know, some, some of the fabrication design and things like that. But I always tell everybody, you know, they, they get three to four months more good weather than we get every year. So it, it, it's point. tough, you know. But well, uh, I was just out there and uh, spent some time at the Peterson Museum. And that place blows me away. You know, they have done a phenomenal job with that. And they've got to see the stuff down in the vault. So, you know, if you ever get out there, anybody that's out there, you know, it's worth paying the other 20 bucks or whatever it is to go and see the vault. But, they, you know, if you are a car person, the way they've documented basically all of any kind of motorsports or history of cars, it, it honestly, it blew me away. I, I spent about a day and a half there. And, and that, that, I kept going back. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't happen with car guys because you and I have seen so many different things that if you go to any, for most part, you go to any car show, you walk past the same cars that you've seen and you get a little jaded in this business because you're just around so many wonderful cars and it takes something really special to kind of stop you in your tracks or make you stop and take a second glance. You know, and Chip Ganassi and some of his guys, you know, I was out there with them, you know, for the Long Beach uh, uh, Grand Prix, but, you know, even Chip turned to me and said, really, like, have you ever seen anything like this in your life? And honestly, had you know, right. they've got some of the most incredible cars out there. So uh, again, that's that's a, a bit of a shameless uh, plug for the Peterson, <laughs> but I can tell you, I get nothing from it other than they're really good people. And if you're a car person, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and the building is beautiful. They re- that redesign on the building that they did, it's spectacular. And then, of course, our friend Bruce Meyer, who uh, uh, helped yeah. with the Peterson, he's got an amazing collection of cars as well, too. So. That I will tell you. And again, you won't meet a you know you talk about a guy that that just truly, truly is passionate and has spent so much of his own time and money trying to make sure he preserves these incredible cars and shows them to people and whatnot. He, he he is really he he is an awesome guy. He, he really is. And as I said, as hard as he's worked just to preserve some of the history that he does, it's amazing. Absolutely, we we met him. Uh, Lee Cross puts on the Shelby GT350 to a reunion tour every year, and and uh, he was here, and they were in Hershey, and we got to spend some time with him down there. And like you said, just an awesome guy, and uh, you know, a great friend of the hobby. And you know what the great thing about the hobby has become? It's not just. You know, I like NASCAR and I like Formula One. I like Harleys and I like Ferraris and I like street rods and I like race cars. People aren't as pigeonholed as they used to be in the hobby. Uh, and I call it a hobby. It's a huge business now. I don't know what I'm saying, hobby, but, but it is amazing. I mean, your collection is diverse as, as is everybody's. Uh, you know, and I learned a long time ago this is you, you collect what you like, right? You know, and that's the whole point. And I like everything, like you just said. <laughs> so I end up with a bunch of cars. They're like, hey, you know, what's your favorite car? And I was like, if, if I could pick my favorite car, I wouldn't have to have so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the beauty of our business. We have 300 barn finds and 700 cars for sale in our building. And you really, you have to put on blinders because otherwise it's like letting your wife work at the dress shop. She'll never come home with a paycheck. And I want to buy everything that comes in the door, you know, so there's that. But I want to talk to you a little bit about, obviously, NASCAR and some of the things you've done. And congratulations to you. Hall of Fame induction in 2018. I mean, that's 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 so cool. How cool was that? One of the coolest things you've been involved in in your life. I think when you know, as your career builds, you, you know, you're not really thinking about things like that. And then all of a sudden, you look back, your career is over. You know, and you've done a lot of different things, and not really sure if it's been recognized because sometimes we don't even take enough time to stop and enjoy and document the things that we're that we've done. And then to be voted into the Hall of Fame by, you know, it, it's really by your peers that right. that happens, whether right. it's press or whether it's other drivers or historians. And to 
even be mentioned in that list of great people that are in that hall, it is really a, a big honor. It's a, it's a very emotional experience. You, uh, it's very hard to explain to people when you're standing up there. It, it's, uh, it's by far the, the, the greatest yet most humbling honor you could ever receive, you know, being, being part of that. So certainly that, um, that induction into the NASCAR Hall of Fame was one of the biggest moments in, in my life, not just my career. Sure. And you know what? It is humbling when people say nice things about you. You know, it, it really, and it, as it should be. Um, but you know, to have, you know, your buddy and, and, you know, coworker Jeff Gordon, uh, say all the nice things that he said. I mean, you know, that's just, that's, and that's documented for history. You know, it's there. It ain't going anywhere because it'll always be out there for somebody to see and review. And then also, didn't you just, Class of 2023 Motorsports Hall of Fame now. Yeah, that was another big one for me. I'm going to tell you, you know, um, there, there were four <laughs> that are on, on, on my list. You know, growing up uh, where I grew up in New Jersey and, and racing around there, a lot of a lot of great friends in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey area, racing the modifies and the sprint cars. You know, the Eastern Motorsports Press Association was always a big one for me. And <laughs> right. We were able to get in there. And then then the National Motorsports Press Association down here, another another one. And uh, certainly the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and I kept thinking, man, someday I hope that the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America thinks enough of me. And sure enough, um, got the call from George Levy and the people down there to let right. them know that that I'm going to be part of that. And you know, you, my head just spins around because I think here, uh, look, you know, not that long. It, it, I, I'm just like a guy that was racing cars in in, in New Jersey and somehow ended up here. I tell everybody all the time. I swear I'm the Forrest Gump of, of auto racing, <laughs> just been in the right place at the right time. And, and uh, so uh, very, very excited. Uh, and again, I was super humbled to find out because if you look at the Motorsports Hall of Fame down there in Daytona, right. and there's there's a list of people like, you know, they're just incredible legends. And it's everybody. I can't it's- think of myself in the, at that level. Right. And, and the class of 2023 is going to be not only be you, but, uh, uh, you got Zora, uh, Arcus Duntov, uh, you yeah. got, uh, who else was on there? I saw some other, oh, Fonty Flock. Now that's a name I'd yeah. never heard of. Fonty, the, the Flock family was really, really, uh, early in NASCAR. Uh, there was Fonty and Tim and they had a sister that, that ran as well. And she was a damn good driver. Really? But the, the Flock family, uh, you know, all, all big winners early in NASCAR history and did an awful lot uh, for the popularity of NASCAR because they as a family were very popular. Sure, sure. And a great name. I mean, that's a, such a memorable name that you can't ever forget that one if you yeah. ever met the guy. So uh, let's talk a little bit about modern day version of NASCAR. What uh, just this past weekend in recording times anyway, whether this airs in that time or not, uh, Bristol on the dirt. What's your uh, what's your thoughts on that? That was interesting. You know, times change, right? Things evolve, and I tell people this all the time. Like you know, and and mechanical things evolve a lot quicker because of the tools, the thing that we're doing. You know, it just doesn't stay the same. So NASCAR's done a really good job, I think, lately evolving with it. You know, um, and they also know that the world, the way we watch motorsports, is changing, and then now it's a lot about television ratings. You're not going to put 125,000 people in the stands anymore in today's with the COVID and the expenses and this and that. And I think NASCAR, A, did a fantastic job designing that car and looking into the future saying, okay, this car is going to bring 
It's never going to bring costs down, okay? Right. But right. it's going to stop that curve from going up like this. It's going to flatten that expense curve because you know, and as I know, in racing, look, if you've got money, you're going to spend it. But they, you know, they've reduced that angle of that expense curve and they've made the competition such that it should bring in new manufacturers and it's certainly going to bring in new owners. You know, look at how competitive, you know, a young guy like Justin Marks with a brand new team exactly. is doing. So it's going to bring in new owners, new manufacturers. It's going to reduce that expense curve and it's bringing a little bit of a younger audience. And, you know, they can say what they want. You know, there was not, it was not a Bristol crowd like we saw, right? right. Like we, exactly. But, but it had over 4 million TV viewers. It was the highest rated TV show for Bristol since 2016. So, you know, they're going in the right direction with these things. And it just, it just takes time. And, and, you know, I tell everybody all the time, look, it's evolution. You know, right. We're, I've got my good old days, but when I came in, you know, I got yelled at by the Harry Hydes and the <laughs> Junior Johnsons because we messed up their good old days, you know, and, and exactly. the mechanical world is changing. Man, oh, man, this has been fun. And, and I want to thank you for being on the show and giving our little podcast a boost of car celebrity. And let's talk about it. You know, we never know. Maybe we'll do a car show one of these days. Maybe we'll. Become- yeah, no, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, be cool. I'm just going to I'm going to keep an eye on that 44 pickup and keep hammering you down on the price. <laughs> Hey, we're here. Just call my guys. They're they're much more gullible than I I mean, they're much more amenable than I am. Anyway, Ray Everham, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at one of the events down the road. Thank you. It's a museum. It's a showroom. It's an experience. The Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania is 336,000 square feet of rare, custom, and specialty automobiles on display and on consignment. From the earliest production cars to modern exotics, Classic Auto Mall is a feast for the eyes and the memories. Stroll through time in any season in this climate-controlled facility that you simply have to see to believe. Admission is free. Just remember to bring comfortable shoes. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Our next best of segment answers the musical question, what looks like a firebird, sounds like a firebird, drives like a firebird, but isn't a firebird. Well, if you don't know the answer, we've got the expert who will tell you right here on the Classic Auto Mall podcast. We have a very special guest on the show this week, Jerry McNeish, who is the Camaro guru and also throw in the Chevelles and the Novas for good measure. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Stuart. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's been, I guess, since almost this time last year since we saw you. Um, yep. You were here for the uh, inaugural to Classic Auto Mall Camaro Nationals, and wow, it turned out pretty good. Oh, yeah, that was by far probably the best event <clears throat> that we've ever done, and uh, there's been several rebirths of this show, yeah, starting out with the U.S. Camaro Club, and then it went to the International Camaro Club, and then uh, it became the ACA Club, which it is now, but uh, this meet that we had last year was by far the best ever in car count judging and the quality of cars that I've seen. Well, I tell you what, it's amazing. You have a bunch of different levels of judging, right? I mean, you can, or and you can come without being judged as well, right? Yeah, there's multiple classes. Um, 
they have everything from 5,000 point legend judging, which we do, down to bow tie. They have a heartbeat class. They have a show and shine class. So basically, there's something there for everyone because a lot of people that own these cars, they just want to drive them and enjoy them. Right. You know? Don't want the pressure. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, then you've got the other diehards that they got a trailer of the car there. They got little socks on the pedals so they don't get the pedals dirty and, yeah, it just uh, craziness, but that's, uh, I guess what's kind of fueled the hobby so much is there's so many different, I guess, aspects to the way people view the cars and the hobby. Sure, sure. Have you ever had a perfect car at the, at the show? I would say very close. Uh, the one thing that we run into is we give you bonus points for certain items. Like if you've got paperwork, original paperwork, if you've got original shock absorbers, uh, things like that, yeah, you would get bonus points. But I don't think there was ever a car that scored 100% uh, without the bonus points. Sure, sure. They're close sure. to it, but not perfect. And what's the one thing that usually gets the guy? What's the one thing that he goes, oh, man, I forgot about that? A lot of times it happens when we do the systems check. So every car in Legends, what we do is we systems check. So you have to start the car, you have to use the directionals, horn, everything in the vehicle, the radio, if it has a rear seat speaker, that has to work too. So basically, every once in a while, we'll get a guy that, you know, he set the car up, and for whatever reason, the directional doesn't work. It's like, <laughs> damn, what am I going to do now? <laughs> oh, man, what a bummer. I mean, you know, it's one thing to lose uh, some points because you, you you did something completely wrong, but just to over have overlooked something, that's got to be frustrating. Oh, yeah. And and sometimes it's just a parts failure. You might have put a new light bulb in or something like that. Sure. And, and it still failed. Well, we, we all know that there, how many times have we all driven a car, parked it in our driveway, everything was fine. You walk out the next morning, something happened. You don't know what it was. It just magically happened. And so, you know, that's yeah. part of it. So when did you first realize that provenance and paperwork and numbers matching meant something. Does that uh, was that an aha moment for you? It was. It was. Uh, it just kind of evolved. I would say probably in the 1990s, because before we had the ACA, we did the International Camaro Show in the Poconos, and what we, we, we looked at the drivetrain when this red, white, and blue, which is Legends, was created. It was done to you know work on a 5,000 point system. But it also, you had to be very anal about the date codes, the drivetrain. The the drivetrain had to be original to the car or you wouldn't score well. So I would say this kind of took off in the 90s. And then I I had written a couple of books on the cars, which have been bestsellers now for over 30 years. And that aided a lot of people. The reason I wrote the books was to actually aid people in restoring their cars. But There's just so many of these Z28s or 396 Chevelles or Copos or Yankos that people are still finding, you know, in the woodwork. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So the hobby is just so alive and well, and I see it every year, you know, working at Barrett-Jackson. I've been employed with them now for 11 years. But, you know, some of the the cars that they bring out there, it's just amazing. I mean, I'm living the dream just seeing this stuff (laughs) at 71 years old. (laughs) Join the club. I feel the same way here. Every day I just new cars show up, and it's like they're mine, but they're not. I don't have to pay for them, and I don't have to feed them, and I don't have to do any of that stuff. But, you know, it's interesting about numbers matching and all that, and that's you know that gets tossed around a lot in this hobby. And the problem is is that some of it's untoward. Some people are trying to – 
pull a fake on somebody. But a lot of guys, if you drill down, the guy will say, oh, I have a numbers matching X, Y, Z or whatever. And you'll say, and when you finally realize the reason that they think it's that is because the guy they bought it from told them that. And the guy they bought it from was told that by the guy he bought it from. And so it's not that they're trying to to be, you know, manipulative. They just don't know any better. They don't know what the numbers mean or how to look or how to find it. Now, we, we have this discussion all the time. And what I can tell uh, your audience is that if it says matching numbers on a car card at Barrett-Jackson, that means it has to be the original drivetrain. Sure. Now, th- this term has been beat to death over the past 30 years. I guess it started in the Corvette hobby. Right. And I think originally the, the, the whole concept was if it was listed as matching numbers, it was the original engine transmission and rear axle. Now, different auction houses or different shows that are done, they don't you know, go by those guidelines for whatever reason. And I don't know why that is, but, uh, it's just the term's been beat to death for so many years. When I'm out doing inspections for clients, I just say, is this the original drivetrain to the car or not? That just cuts through all the bull. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and when you go out and inspect these cars, I mean, I have a copy of one of your appraisal sheets here. It's pretty darn thorough. I mean, you can tell all the way down to, you know, parts that it may or may not be aftermarket, whether it's an, you know, an alternator or generator or a, or a, uh, a fuse or, I mean, the carburetors, obviously the intake, everything has got some kind of tracking on it, correct? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, we, uh, I, I guess when you're looking at all these parts, like when I'm doing it for, uh, like this week I was down in Southern Maryland, I did two Z28s and an LS6 Chevelle for a, a local client. And what we're doing is verifying that the build sheet is real for the LS6, that the engine is real, and that the rear axle was real. In the case of this car, the transmission was a replacement, but that's normal. I mean, sure. those cars were beat up, man. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. you know, paperwork uh, is critical. And when you have the original engine, that's actually, you know, a 33% deduction if you don't. So that's a big deal. Sure. I tell people all the time, if you're going to invest in a Z28 or a Chevelle or a Nova SS, what you want to do is try and find one, be patient with the original motor. Right. Transmission and, and rear axle, not so much, but the engine is everything. That's the heart of the car. Absolutely. No no question about it. And I think that people are becoming more and more educated about it and, and how this works and, and that it is important. Um, and then, of course, you've got guys who take cars that uh, the original motor's long gone and they make a resto mod out of it. And we see that a lot in this hobby, and especially at Barrett. Uh, we're seeing a lot of the rest of mods. What's your take on rest of mods, Jerry? Well, the rest of mods, that's, that's what makes this hobby so cool, because there are the people like myself. Every time I get in one of my cars, it's like driving that car that I bought new off the showroom floor. It's that new car experience. But then you got a lot of people, I guess, uh, later in life, you know, it's they prefer to have all the luxuries and, you know, air conditioning and a good sound system in, you know, a vintage type vehicle. Sure. So, uh, that's, I mean, it's just something, it's just another part of the hobby that, uh, that people are really attracted to now. I, I do know from working with clients at Barrett Jackson, building one of those restaurants, it's not cheap. <laughs> it's absolutely not. You guys got some bad weather up there now? Some, uh, we're getting some. Uh, bad storms coming through. We had, we literally went for about a month without getting any rain, it seemed like. And then all of a sudden in the past week, it's just every other day it's coming. So, you know, we, I, I don't know whether it's global warming or not global warming. I don't even know anymore. No. It's just ridiculous. 
It's just weather. You know, because you know what's funny? This is what cracks me up. They talk about global warming, for example. Yet, they'll always say on the news, and the record high today was in 1902. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If the record high was in 1902, then wasn't there global warming? I don't know. You know, I'm not very politically correct. That's why I do what I do and talk about cars. <laughs> Our special guest today coming to us from, uh, I believe you're home in Maryland, right? Is that where you are? Yeah, Jerry? Eldersburg, Maryland. Eldersburg, Maryland. Good to have you. So you got to be, I guess the one thing of, with, with the hobby and, and in your position has got to be being the bearer of bad news sometimes. And boy, that can't be a fun part of the gig, right? You got to tell a guy that. Well, it's, it, it's it's very difficult to do. Uh, I know, I remember we had a car we judged in Legends about two years ago, and uh, the transmission was not authentic. It was restamped, and because I am considered the master of all the stampings and everything, because I have a database of over thirty thousand photographs, right. uh, I, I do what's called you know the forensics or data analysis to evaluate this, and then when you got to tell the you know, the customer, uh, or the, you know, the uh, participant in the right. show, uh, well, the transmission is an original, so that's going to be a hit. Now, right. sometimes they'll complain about it and, and sometimes, uh, they say, okay, we'll just, you know, d- we'll do the best you can for sure, it. And that's, sure. that's what we typically do. Now, it, sometimes it gets pretty ugly working at Barrett Jackson because we get <laughs> right. these consigners and they say every, every LS6 that comes in there is a matching numbers car. Well, they were all raced at the drag strip. So anyway, I mean, probably one, one quarter of them, you know, are authentic and have sure. original drivetrains, but sometimes we get the people, uh, you know, at the auction, they say, well, this is the original engine. I said, well, we have the power here. If uh, you're not going to change the car card, you have to pull the car from the auction. Sure. So Steve Davis, who's the president, he basically gave us the power, you know, because we're trying to help everybody. We're protecting, you know, potential buyers and we're protecting the assigner because it can come back to him. Absolutely. That's what people don't realize. You know, you, you had to be the bearer of bad news to us on an LS6 Chevelle when we were in, when I was in Lockhaven and, uh, you know, it, we, we had a good feeling. We we knew, and we were having the inspection done because we wanted to prove whether it was or it wasn't. Not that we assumed that it was or it wasn't. We pretty much kind of had a feeling that it wasn't. And, you know, it was interesting, some of the things that, that I learned from that inspection process, and just uh, that's pretty fascinating about it. I mean, I was looking through this report. It just floors me that says uh, uh, service replacement horn relay and voltage regulator. Yeah. <laughs> that is quite thorough. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just from being around these cars for 53 years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, uh, you know, it's it's funny because, gosh, you think about the Camaro was introduced in 1967, which was 57, six, seven years ago when it was introduced. Yep. That's hard to believe. And, you know, uh, to see the ones that come here to the Camaro Nationals, I saw I don't, uh, second gen, at least three SS396 uh, second gen Camaros that you just don't see very often. No. That's just yeah. a really amazing car. And, and I guess uh, the other thing that was interesting to me is if you look through old brochures from 1968 and 69 when they were introducing, uh, uh, the, the, uh, Z28 for the, for the third year, um, there's not much mention about the 302 motor. So it mentions all the other motors, but in the, even in the factory literature, it doesn't, is there a reason it doesn't say about the DZ302? Well, I, I think the the big issue back then with, with me having bought a car back then out of high school, um, the the three hundred two was rated at two hundred and ninety horsepower, and the reason the reason they did that is because 
of insurance. The, the magic number back then was 300 horsepower. If you had a car that was less than 300 horsepower, they weren't going to, you know, sock it to you as far as your annual cost for to insure the car. Sure. And you know, in my case, I had to put m- my car in my dad's name because you couldn't afford the insurance <laughs> as an 18 or 19 year old. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, all part of the, uh, you know, the equation here. So. Sure. Jerry, such a pleasure to have you on the show. We really appreciate it. We'll we'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks again, sir. I can't say enough. I mean, we just appreciate all you do. Thank you so much, Dick. It's all about cars and car people on the Classic Auto Mall podcast. Listen to new shows every week on AmericasWebRadio.com at 9 a.m. Eastern. After that, episodes are available there and on podcast providers such as Spotify and Google Play. Each week, Classic Auto Mall president Stuart Howden serves as your podcast host and interviews personalities from every aspect of the automotive world. Collectors, photographers, classic car dealers, and everyone in between. You don't want to miss an episode of the Classic Auto Mall podcast. Check out more at ClassicAutoMall.com. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Next up on this best of episode, Stuart talks to a man who knows what your classic cars were, or at least he'll help you figure it out right here on the Classic Auto Mall podcast. We have a wonderful guest on the show today, um, Keith Martin, the publisher of Sports Car Market Magazine. Good morning, Keith. How are you today? Well, I'm doing great, Stuart. It's great to see you. If you haven't read or seen Keith's magazine, Sports Car Market, you got to get it, man. It is the great. I've been, I don't know how many years now it's been. I guess since I really started reading you seriously in about 2001 when I was with eBay Cruise back in the day, back when you used to have paintings instead of photographs on the cover. Yeah, we. this is our 35th year. Wow. I know it's a little crazy. It was a hobby in my basement with a mimeograph machine. See, I told you, Steve, it was a mimeograph machine. So whatever those are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have no idea. I, I do, but I, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Well, remember carbon paper too, back, you know, when you put that between, yeah. <laughs> between yeah. the, or, or how about a selector typewriter? Oh my goodness gracious. We're really dating ourselves. Uh, but so you started it as the Alfa Romeo newsletter, right? Was it a one page deal? Was that? How it started? No, it's my, my inspiration. I was the uh, GM of Ron Tonkin Ferrari Maserati. And I started seeing copies of the Ferrari Market Letter by Gerald Rausch. Right. And I was really inspired by the way that he, he did it. It was so clear and authoritative. And so I thought, well, gee, you know, there's a Pantera Market Letter and a Cobra Market Letter and a Maserati Market Letter, but there's no Alpha Market Letter. And I'd always been an Alpha guy. Right. So I put an ad in Hemings Motor News that said, subscribe to the Alpha Market Letter. And I think we got about 50 subscriptions. Nice. And then I thought, now I thought, now what? <laughs> yeah, we got to monetize this thing. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny when when you see things back in the old days. People don't realize is that the way we communicated with other human beings was usually through the classifieds in some form or fashion. Either that's exactly right. You know, we we you, you sold anything. It was always in the classifieds. You bought a house. You looked in the classifieds. You bought a car. It was always you used the class. And now they're basically non-existent. I mean, you see a little bit of them, but certainly not the same as it was. Sure, we used to get uh, people from all over the country to clip out classifies for Alfa Romeo's from their local newspapers and mail to us 
And then we'd come out once a month, and the cars would still be for sale. Still for sale because nobody can move that fast, right? Well, well you, and then you'd have then you you call them, and then they would send you four or five uh, three by five pictures of right. their car. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You know? you know, we still literally the other day I got an envelope addressed to me, handwritten. I knew exactly what it was. It was an oversized envelope. You open it up, it's photographs of this guy's car, and it's bad copies of photographs, and it's a handwritten letter. Literally, it was like four pages long. <laughs> about his car and everything about it. And, you know, this was such an old school guy. And I said to him, I said, I got to guess that you don't have an email address. He says, I don't even have a fax machine. (laughs) So Yeah. The the biggest change, Stuart, over the past 10 years has been the advent of social media. Because, right, you know, like the Arizona Concord just happened last weekend. And the Arizona Concord has a half-life of about 48 hours on Instagram. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that Pictures, 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 and then gone. Gone. Yeah. And you know, it, and it, what leads me to ask the question to you is how difficult is it to be relevant in a magazine that you have to have a lead time of a couple of months? How do you stay relevant? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh we figured something out because we're 35 years and bigger than we've ever been. And if you go to the newsstands, you'll find us to be one of the only magazines there in the airport. Right. And, and I think, Stuart, the reason is, is that we have highly qualified writers who give their informed opinion. So if, if you have an F40 who sold for a million four, they'll tell you just knowing that it sold for a million four, you'll find out the day it sold. Right. But why it sold for a million four, what it sold for last time across the block. What this means for the F-50, but all that stuff, that's what we bring to the table so you come away a better informed collector after reading the magazine. No question about it. I mean, I, I, it's funny, you know, I used to, I use and still utilize obviously the platinum database that you guys have. Yeah. That's got, I just, I just, I was on there uh, this morning. You got 330, no, 399,000 records in the database. That's amazing. I mean, well, you want me to let you in on a secret now, please. And don't tell anybody <laughs> within two or three months, we're going to be announcing that we've formalized a search engine. So you'll be able to search all 35 years of the Mac, every single back issue. Wow. So if you, if you plug in a VIN number, every single time we've mentioned that VIN number in an auction report or a profile or a story, it'll pop up with a link to where that VIN number is. That's fantastic. And you know, with the, with the software that they have today, I guess it's much easier to do today than it would have been even 10 or 15 years ago. I'm going to let you (laughs) give yourself some self pity right now right. <laughs> because I had a Ferrari 330 America that I in the in the late 70s I bought it for $28,000 in Bozeman Montana and drove it home to Portland Oregon and I sold it for $32,000 oh. because I had to pay the bills right there's there's one being I think RM has it and they are expecting to get 4 to 600,000 for it but Stuart if I had kept that car for another year I would have sold it for $50,000 you know exactly. I, I never had the money to just grab a car and put it in the corner of the garage and keep it. I had to churn to make my living. Absolutely. And I think we all, you know, you try to explain that to somebody. Say, well, you could have bought a Hemi Superbird in 1973 for, you know, $3,500. Yeah, but. Where was I going to keep it? How was I going to, you know, I've been through a couple of wives. I've been through a couple of houses. I bought 12 vacuum cleaners in my lifetime. Where the hell was I going to keep this Hemi Superbird all this time to make it valuable again? Nowhere. I couldn't do it. Well, and how are you going to feed it? You know, because it's going to need stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what keeps kicking me from, from, I keep wanting to buy a used, somewhat used Ferrari. And what keeps me from doing that is everyone I read about says recent $30,000 service. And I, know, I think I know. that's going to be me. <laughs> no, Stuart, so we're the only fools on the planet that when you buy a car and it comes with a huge stack of documentation, 
a normal person says, holy crap, this car breaks down a lot. You and I say, oh, everything's fixed. What can go wrong now? Nothing, right? right. It's all been done. It's all been done. And you learn all these things like, and you become an expert when you, before you, before you're not an expert when you first see one, cause you want one cause it's cool looking or it's going to sound good or whatever. And then you start learning things like clutchware, even on an automatic and how, how much, and they can do a report on that and how much clutchware there is. And you learn about that it pull, the, the leather dash pulls away from the windshield. Right. And it's all this stuff. It's like, wait a minute. This is becoming kind of a bummer. <laughs> I just so want the, the damn car. I have is why can't Ferrari make a dash that that the leather's as good as a Hyundai? Yeah, exactly, or a Corvette for that matter. I mean, you talk yeah. about the argument for Corvette. I've never been a Corvette guy, um, but boy, oh boy, you look at the Z06s and you look at the ZR1s and you look at all these cars and you think, first of all, it's way cheaper to purchase. Second of all, it's way cheaper to maintain. Third of all, it doesn't have all these little quirky things that happen. They tell you that the 599 GTB Ferrari, if you put it in reverse and go too far, it'll start smelling like burnt rubber. <laughs> you know, you can't, um, unfortunately, logic comes into, doesn't play a large part in this. Because I've owned a few Ferraris, uh, like 308 GT4s and 328s. And I would put the sound of a V8 Ferrari against the sound of a new Corvette any day of the week. And I, I know the Corvette's a better car. Sure. It's a better deal. It's, I, I know every, but I want that hot flash, you know, <laughs> that I get from firing up my 4Cam Ferrari. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing that keeps driving me back to it. And, and, and the other thing that keeps driving me back to it is that first of all, we preach to people that we talked about this last week on our show. Don't buy a car to make a profit. Buy a car because you love it. Buy the best you can possibly get. But get the car. You know, eat the cake. Buy the dress. You know the whole the old saying. Buy the right, car. Right. If you've always wanted a Ferrari, then buy the damn Ferrari and enjoy it. And if it breaks down, okay, so what? You just move on. I think that if you if you want to buy cars to make money, you're a dealer. Exactly. You know, for me, I pay. Like when I recently bought a Citroen, a seventy one, I paid seventy seven thousand dollars for it because right. it was really the best in the world. Sure. And how do you, uh, yeah? How do you put a value on the best in the world? Well, I easy. You bid on bring a trailer. The last guy bid sixty nine. You bid seventy. You keep hoping for him to bid seventy one and set you free, and it doesn't happen. I can't tell you how many times I bid on something and prayed to somebody would outbid me. I know. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, and it's hard to predict that. I mean, what's going to be a future collectible? Don't laugh. Is it going to be a PT Cruiser or a Prowler? Are they going to be collectible? Who knows? I don't, you know, I, the, the problem is cars become collectible for a variety of reasons, but a, a Prowler or a PT Cruiser, they might be fun at a Radwood show, but out in the real world, there's, there's just kind of a yuck factor for those cars. Yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. I just, and the other thing is, is that, you know, it's not, people say it's hard to predict what's going to be valuable in the future. Uh, I disagree. I think you buy the, you know, the rarest, best of the best and, you know, there's rare and then there's desirable. We talk about that all the time. Just because they made 595 Mustangs and Chartreuse doesn't mean anybody cares. No, it also sometimes cars start to become valuable, you know, piece of crap cars. Because they all disappear and right. get used up. I mean, you know, it's it's really weird to watch bring a trailer, but if you had a mint Pinto with two thousand miles, it, it might bring surprising money because it's the only one. Exactly. Well, I just saw on Barrett last night a, a seventy Cadillac Coupe DeVille brought one hundred and ten thousand dollars with the fees. The nicest one in the world you should be able to buy for thirty. This thing had thirty five hundred original miles and whatever, whatever. But my goodness gracious, how ex- I mean. That's off the charts expensive. Nobody has that in their price. You know what? What Barrett and and all uh uh with the trolls on Bring a Trailer, what Barrett does, mm-hmm. what the big land auctions do, they get you in an arena 
that um, you're surrounded by people who are bidding. Right. Which which means it's okay for you to bid. Right. It has to be because yep. that guy's bidding on it. What's your take on car shows in general? I mean, are they all build shows now, and that's what they've become? Um, I you ask a really good question because uh, I think it's a waste of time to say, oh, driving's going away, people don't love cars, and that's not true. How we interact with cars is going to change. My 15 year old, I mean, he can drive a stick and likes old cars. But he ended up may having electric cars all his life. Right. Yeah. And that's just the way it'll be. I think car shows have to figure out how to be relevant without being uh, common. In other words, the, you still want to go see the glitzy, big, expensive cars. But maybe there's an easier way to see them because, like, cars and coffee have become a great competition. What? When you go to a Concorde, you have to arrive at 8. <laughs> yeah, you have to right. sit with your car all right. day long, usually in the sun. Yeah. Not a lot of fun. Uh, and then at, at, at three or four o'clock when they start giving the awards, everybody starts leaving. I mean, when I've been the MC of Concord, I can't tell you the number of times when I would announce best of show and everybody was gone. <laughs> it was like the last song at the Van Halen concert. No, they're not, you know, <laughs> one, and so, so the question is uh, with the cars and coffee, you can get there, spend an hour and get back to your life. Yeah. I'm not a sit behind my car on a folding chair kind of guy all day. I like to pull in, hang out for, you know, half an hour, yeah. an hour and then go. So speaking of Concord, um, what does Pebble look like in 20 years? The same? Different? You, who knows? I think Pebble stands apart. Yeah. First of all, the grounds are unbelievable. The history is unbelievable. The selection committee is unbelievable. The judges are unbelievable. So they're really like an all-star event. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it will, you're not going to see a lemons at Pebble Beach. Right. Are we over concouring? Are we like when the auction business went crazy with new auction houses every day? You know, I, you're asking a question I don't have a good answer to. Uh, we're going to, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Amelia this year with Haggerty in full control of it. Yeah, exactly. Because Haggerty has got, you know, it has a, a, a big presence now in the <laughs> electric car world with their concours and their tours. And the question will be, uh, how, and because they're traded on Wall Street, they need to grow these things and make them profitable. But it's possible, and Haggerty is clever and full of smart people. We, we're just kind of watching. <laughs> For us, we're like Switzerland. We're just on the outside watching all this. Yeah, I we feel like Switzerland. <laughs> well, listen, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. We Let's don't make this the last time we do this. We'll have to do it again sometime because i got a, three more pages of notes to talk about. Okay. So we will definitely do it again. I really enjoyed this, and I'm really pleased to have been a part of it. It's a museum, it's a showroom, it's an experience. The Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania is 336,000 square feet of rare, custom, and specialty automobiles on display and on consignment. From the earliest production cars to modern exotics, Classic Auto Mall is a feast for the eyes and the memories. Stroll through time in any season in this climate-controlled facility that you simply have to see to believe. Admission is free. Just remember to bring comfortable shoes. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Our final segment in this best of episode has a man who knows that you have a Mustang story. He says everybody does. So sit back as Stuart talks horses and horsepower right here on the Classic Auto Mall podcast. Our special guest is up in the Detroit area. I like to say my ex-father-in-law wrote a song called Detroit City, and I cannot say Detroit. I have to say Detroit. Right. So uh, Mr. John Clore, the enthusiast <laughs> communications manager of Ford Performance with the Ford Motor Company. John, how are you? I'm doing great, Stu. This is a great honor. I appreciate the time. So cool. Don Humanic, one of our car specialists, met you down in at Carlisle a couple of weeks ago. Right. And gave me your card, and he said, oh, this guy you got to talk to. He's great, and, you know, he's the Ford guru. So... <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate that name. I know, I know, I know. I knew you were going to say that, but uh, <laughs> but you know, the, I mean, gosh, what a great gig you have! You get to travel around and talk about performance Fords. What I mean, can it get any better? Uh, it, it kind of evolved to that. You know, when I first, uh, I thought I had the best job. I worked 15 years at the Detroit News as an editor, and then I was wanted to be the auto writer. And the auto writer back then was a guy named Bob Irvin. And he was there forever. And I, I just, I got to the point where I, when I left the news after 14 years, I think he was 107. He was not going to retire. You know, he was just, <laughs> so I, I got a, I got a chance. Uh, one of my buddies, uh, at the paper jumped over to Auto Week magazine, which was in downtown. And he said, John, you don't have to work weekends. Auto companies pay you, fly you all around the world to drive their cars and you can write about cars. So I quit the paper. And definitely, yeah, I definitely wanted to make sure that uh, I had a car job, you know. <laughs> and, I, and who would quit that? Yeah, you know, who would who would quit writing about cars for not just a monthly buff book, uh, a weekly, a weekly? That's exactly. Yeah, right. that's for the guys that what? That's for the guys that uh, can't uh, can't wait a whole month. Yeah, exactly. That's why I had decided, you know. Why do auto writers write? Yeah. Well, they want the car companies to listen to them. Sure. That's it. You know, your seats are terrible. The handling's bad. You write your review, and you just want the car companies to listen to you. You very rarely see a bad review of a car anymore. I mean, is it just well, because... I mean, that, that's the case, Stuart. Um, you know, it got to the point where some of our Buff Book competitors never met a car they didn't like. Right, and, yeah. And, and, you know, I get it because they advertise in the book, and if you bash their product, they pull their advertising, and you're out of business. But I didn't know this. My um, managing editor's dad was a Ford engineer who was the lead engineer on the retractable hardtop. Oh, my God. He, the guy must be great. I mean, that, that the, the the workings, the inner workings of that, if people don't, if you don't know. As the, a, the switches and the wiring? It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I, I said either he was a genius or he was crazy. Yeah, I think crazy would probably be yeah. better. <laughs> so when he had the chance to go to Ford, he jumped ship and he kept bothering me to come join him. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're going to work on this special vehicle team and he said it's a niche group and it's a bunch of mercenaries from they're, they're grabbing them out of buff books they didn't want ford guys right they wanted people from the outside who've driven everything else uh to come in and market this and i he said we don't have any advertising budget i go well good luck with that i was, I was spongebob <laughs> yeah, nice talking to you <laughs> yeah, how, how are you going to promote the special vehicle team he said through the buff books and since we knew everybody they're all our friends our fellow journalists right we created a, a you know a rifle shot marketing campaign to get the 
these products in the in the magazines and in the hands of reviewers to say, hey, there's this crazy bunch of guys who are making high performance Fords. And that's, I mean, to me, that was so novel. We sat at the same table as the engineers. And when we would come back from a, an event, they'd say, well, how did it go? Well, the guy said, your gauges are terrible. Your seats suck. You know, right, and, right. Gonna, and you get to tell directly to the engineer, which is what I was doing as an auto writer, hoping they'd read it. You know? Right, right. It's the way car companies should be run. And I, I, I loved it. I thought it would last forever. Of course, it, we, we were... Um, uh, disembanded in uh, ten years after that, twenty two oh five, because we're a bunch of renegade cowboys. We yeah. were, I mean, and when I when I wound up going to Ford Racing, spent ten years there. That's where I started this whole outreach program, and where I started. Hey, you know, we're. I, I had a little saying. Everybody has a Mustang story. Oh, absolutely. There's no question and about it. it. And you could be a Chevy guy. You don't have to ever have owned one. It could have been your kid in high school, the guy down the street, your uncle, your brother-in-law. You, everybody has one, whether you, what, what kind of car you like or not. That's exactly so right. That's, that's when I kind of started chasing the stories of the, the owners of 10 million of these things out there. You know? God. Um, and that's when I started telling their story. And Stuart, it's been a wonderful journey because um, that's where the real hobby is. It's out on the, the guy that's got a, his, his, his car of his life. Maybe he's restored it. Maybe he's had it all his life. He joins the enthusiast community. He goes to the cruise ins. Those people have incredible stories to tell. And for the last now 10 years, um, uh, with FordPerformance.com, I have my own enthusiast section. Sure. And I, I, I get to tell their story. And sure. I, yeah, where do you get it? You don't get it from a desk in Dearborn. <laughs> no, you do not. <laughs> you get it by going out in the shows, right? Because those those guys will tell you more about your car than any of your engineers will know because they oh, have yeah. had to – they didn't have the luxury of the best equipment and the perfect tool for everything that they needed to do. They just did it the best that they could. And, you know, guys like that, are the, the, that's who we love because guys like that are our best customers because mm-hmm. they – when they're when they're ready to move up or change or, or go laterally or whatever they're going to do differently in the car world, they don't want to sell the car themselves because their heart and pride and joy – they don't want some guy to come there and – pick it apart. They don't want right. some guy to come there and tell them everything that's wrong with their car. So they say, you know what, Classic Automobile, you guys take it and sell it. And then that way I don't have to deal with that you know what, so and so. So It's been quite a story. It's been quite a journey. But, um, you know, I I must have had, as a journalist, uh, I have probably 200 Mustang books in my office. And my wife said, you know, how many Mustang books do you really need? <laughs> and, and she's right. You know, but sure. A lot of these guys, I know these guys, I, you know, I came up in the last 25 years of journalism with most of these authors. I've known them all. I've worked with them in some capacity. And they're all great, great you know, writers are a crazy bunch. But you know what, Stuart? Um, when I got to Ford, I realized that in the Mustang world, almost every generation Mustang has had a, a dirty little secret that no one has any, been able to unlock. And even as a journalist, when I would ask Ford people, you know, no, that's not true, or no comment, I don't know. Right. And so I decided to write my first book. Why would I need another one? Because I wanted to tell those stories, you know. I wanted to, uh, you know, that was like 15 years ago when I wrote that. And I said, you know, I wanted to get the... The Mustang is more than just a car. How did it become an icon? How, you know, why do you still see it in commercials today? Absolutely. I mean, they said, I read somewhere yesterday, I was doing a little research and they said that the year that it was introduced in 64, at Christmas time of that year, 96,000 Mustang pedal cars were sold to children. Wow. <laughs> that, you talk about an impact that a car has that even the kids, you know, little kids wanted one. I mean, yeah. wow. Yeah. You got to start them young, but 96,000. <laughs> 
thousand of anything, even if it was a full size car, would be a successful run. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I think that uh, you know if you look at I mean the first year Mustangs, how many were there over six hundred thousand sold in the first? Yeah, and and within eighteen months, uh, so if you go a year and a half because you know, it started in April. Yeah, uh, they sold a million cars. That I mean, talk about a un just a unmitigated home run. Just yeah. the home well, run. Of- in, t- in today's world, because of the chip shortage and what was it, supply chain issues? Right. <laughs> um, we get a smash hit like the Maverick pickup, and we can only sell a hundred thousand of them. They're so- then they're sold out, and they say, "Come back next year." Can you imagine if Leon Coca would have sold a hundred thousand and said, "Come back next year"? Exactly. You know, he sold a million. Yeah, a million. Yeah, and Mustangs I think were about twenty six hundred dollars new back yep. in sixty four and a half or sixty. Call them 64 and a half, but uh, obviously they're all, I guess, titled as a 65, right? The beauty of it is that we do have products that people want. Sure. And seven generations and coming up on seven at least uh, this this coming year, we're right. going to have a big announcement. So the joy is how how great is it that you've been able to figure out with all the changes in society since 1964, with all the changes in tastes and likes and was to continue to make a product that people like and, yeah. and people that fall in love with, and it's still fun to drive. That's that's for me the big key, and that's why I'm I'm loving telling this big story about Mustang. Sure, I, I mean I look at the new ones and I like them as much as the old ones, and I can't say that about every car that's been re envisioned. It's turned out that if you make a car that appeals to a broad spectrum of people, you don't have to focus it that narrowly. You just make it beautiful, fun to drive, and I think the bottom line today is affordable. Yeah, absolutely, I think cars are becoming too expensive for young people to buy. Even entry level cars are. What few of you can still find? What's the average price of a car these days? Forty thousand plus? I'm yeah, sure it is. It has to be. In there. Yeah, can you imagine? You know, a, you know, a sixty month car note, and oh, uh, yeah, it's. So you're wondering why you know young people aren't into the car market? It's not because they don't like them. Yeah, they just can't afford them. I think that's part of the Maverick success. With the remember back when the original Maverick came out, it was 1999. Yeah. And now the new one is nineteen thousand nine hundred ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, what? The other interesting thing we were talking about with the Mustang was the fact that how many Shelbys have been built in the past five years compared to what was built in all the previous <laughs> years prior to that. I mean, my goodness gracious! There's a new version every time you turn around, which is cool. I love that. There's nothing against that. No, and you know, somebody said when we were at SVT, aren't you angry that there's guys like Shelby and Roush and Celine? Out there, you know, taking your business away. And my, uh, my, the chief engineer, the head of SVT at the time was a guy named John Coletti. And John said, no, because for them to make a Shelby Mustang, they got to buy a Ford Mustang. Yeah, we'll show, yeah. we'll show them. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, and if that's the case, you know, I'm just proud of the fact that the factory can make the GT500. Absolutely. Uh, Shelby's not making it. We are. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when SVT, you know, a lot of people said, you know, were you sad that all of a sudden your SVT Cobra became a Shelby? In a way, yeah, we developed our own Cobra and we bought the Cobra name back. And then when Carol showed up, um, it was kind of a, a shock, you know. And sure. We had a 2006 SVT Mustang Cobra that never came to market. It was fully developed. And then Carol came in and it turned into the 2007 SV or Shelby GT500. Right. But people say, well, well, Carol, Carol engineered that. No, Ellen Collins. Right. Was the, she was the chief engineer on that car? Did Carol have an input on it? Yeah, he didn't like the shifter. He didn't like this and that. We made some changes, but the fact that we can make a car from the factory that Carol Shelby 
blessed and said, if I were to build this car, this is what I would do. That's hey, all. That's uh, you, that's good. That's good stuff. Yeah, you die and go to heaven on something like that. I mean, you know, you've done it right. And you know, I mean, the legacy of him. It's nice to see that the that the the '60s model GT 500s and 350s are starting to come of into their own as far as price wise at auctions and things like that for so long. And we all thought, you know, when when the old old man left or left us, uh, that the prices would skyrocket, which they really didn't. And and actually, a GT 500 KR convertible was a bargain for a while, uh, I I think. Um, And then now they're starting to catch on. I'm seeing them getting nipping on close to four hundred thousand dollars at auction. So, (laughs) well, just like back in the day, you know, I don't know. Growing up, um, you know, there was just a little bit ahead of me. It was more my brother's era, and um, people you had to have more money to buy a Shelby. You didn't see a lot of Shelbys Mm -hmm. in, in the circles. My brother was a Woodward Street racer, and my dad was a Detroit cop. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That, That's a whole, that's a whole show in itself. (laughs) We've got to do this again, John. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. We've got lots more to talk about. Absolutely. And next time you're on the turnpike, you got to stop in and say hello to us. You know, uh, I do want to come by. I might, uh, I've got some shows coming up uh, in the fall. I I do want to stop in. If you don't mind, I'll I'll ring your doorbell. That would be great, Stuart. You've been listening to the Classic Auto Mall Podcast with your host, Stuart Howden. Executive producer, Steve Safir. Produced and engineered by yours truly, J.R. Russ. Thanks for listening and sharing the Classic Auto Mall Podcast. Available on ClassicAutoMall.com, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Questions, answers, or comments? Write us at podcast at ClassicAutoMall.com. And if you want to talk about buying a classic car seen on our website, you're looking for a particular vehicle or want to consign your classic for sale, write us at info at classicautomall.com or call and talk to a real live classic car specialist at 888-227-0914. That's 888-227-0914. Music courtesy of the Pat Travers Band. For tour dates, contact, and stuff, visit pattravers.com. The Classic Auto Mall Podcast is produced by Car Smarts Media, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.